0: Hello, I'm back with more in my recap of Australian Bushfire Building Conference, and this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one of my recap about the Australian Bushfire Building Conference, then head back to the previous episode. Um, Otherwise, let's dive into part two. Now, there was a consistent theme to the Australian Bushfire Building Conference about the role that you as a homeowner living in your home, what you can actually do to ensure its bushfire resistance, and that can actually have a more significant impact. To its resilience and resistance in, in the event of a bushfire than its actual construction. So this is this episode's really talking about things that are not directly related to the construction, and I'm going to be talking in a lot more detail about the things to consider when you're wanting to ensure a home's bushfire resistance in a more active way. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire prone areas and more generally designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts, plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. So, now let's get on with the episode. Since my family and I have moved to a more regional area, I've found that it's a regular thing to get letterbox drops at certain times of the year or ads on the television and local radio, reminding you to get your fire plan in place. And every time we drive into Lismore, we drive past the SES uh, station and their their signage out the front always has an update of what's going on with the current weather conditions and what you need to be doing to protect your property. This is not something that I'd experienced before moving here. And if I'm brutally honest with you, it's not something that I actively thought about, uh, probably until the week or so prior to having bushfires 14 kilometres away from our home in November 2019 as the black summer bushfire season started in Australia. So where I live, you know, our home, it sits on the top of a hill and there's one road out. It's about one and a half kilometres Uh, down to the nearest sort of main road that that enters our property and our home is it's timber weatherboard uh, with a metal roof it's on a timber frame the southern side of the property actually falls quite steeply to lower paddocks and a large creek and that side of the hill it's covered with bush and a fair amount of camphors as well and then we have a pump that's down by that creek that pumps water to one of our tanks And that tank will supply animal troughs and the pool and garden irrigation. Basically anything that doesn't get used by humans gets creek water. And then we have another two tanks for rainwater. Um, They supply water to the house. I don't know how much exactly is in those three tanks. Um, It'd probably be 100,000 litres across the three of them. And Last year, you know, 2019, that was the only time since we moved into this property. We moved here mid-2014. So since moving in, we had to do an initial top-up of the water supply when we moved in because there was broken pipes and things like that. Since then, though, we've been perfectly sustained from rainwater. and and However, during 2019, we actually needed to buy, I think, four or five tank loads of water, which is about 13,000 litres at a time. So... On the northeast and eastern side of the property, we have almost 80 acres where we are. The land actually falls much more gently and there's grazing land with some treed areas and it heads down the hill to some flats where there's a spring-fed creek that winds its way across the property below ours and that marks the boundary on that side of the property. Now, the drought that we'd been experiencing saw these two creeks on both boundaries of our property running very low. And in fact, the Springfed Creek that's on the northern side it had pretty much stopped running. Neighbours had said that they hadn't seen that in the 20 plus years that they've lived here. We have some trees around the house itself. There's mainly pecan trees. There's a range of other established trees, some other fruit trees and things like that. But around the house, it's mainly a grassed area with some smaller gardens. And my husband and I, we're not great gardeners. Well, he's actually a great gardener. I'm a terrible gardener. But we have, you know, animals. And when there's a litter of piglets and they tend to find their way out of their penned area, they push their way under the fence, they tear around the garden around our house. Or occasionally the cattle, somebody's left the front gate open, the cattle um, will come in to our garden um, where there's hay being stored um, in a particular area. We've got a couple of acres around our house itself and uh, the cattle come in and, and go directly to the bale of hay and so they just trample things. So let's just say the garden doesn't look as great as it did when we first moved in. But in November last year, you know, the reason that I'm telling you all of this is just to paint a bit of a picture of where things were at when November happened last year. So it was dry. It was really dry here. And I mean, we're fortunate that we live in an area in northern New South Wales where There is a fair amount of rainfall and it's fairly green compared to other parts of the country but comparatively here it was super dry. We were buying in feed for the cows at a quantity that was unmatched to our previous experience. There was a mess of hay in the paddocks near the house because the cows would come in each day to feed and get water and it would get strewn all over the the ground and you know this was the situation that you know we sort of looked across fields of dry dry grass dry hay dry paddocks when we knew that fires were nearby and my husband went and purchased a pump that we could use for firefighting if we needed to and he tested it by connecting it up to the pool and and checking and we've got quite a large pool the builder who owned this place and built this house you know a few decades ago put in a very large pool so there's quite a body of water there and We had a generator if we lost power. And in the days that were prior to those, you know, that time in November, the fires were sort of getting closer and closer. Friends that were further into the suburb where we are, they were being and closer to the to the bushland, they were being told to evacuate it. And we started formally prepping our house. And I spoke about this at the very beginning of this season. So you know, that meant that we were filling the gutters, we were hosing down the roof, we were clearing all the debris around the house, removing debris and leaf litter, all the things that you may be familiar with. And my hubby, who's much more uh, pragmatic and practical, and, and he had had a fire plan in place. It was just me that hadn't really thought about it. And he, you know, he and, and my in-laws, definitely did the lion's share of the work outside, whilst I ran around inside and photographed and videoed all of our belongings, um, you know, made sure the kids were okay, packed what we could into the car in case that we needed to leave, made sure all the paperwork was in order, and uh, that you know everything was was taken care of in that regard. And you know, as far as I was concerned, we've got macadamias that are on a neighbouring property that you can see off to the northwest. Um, you know across quite a large paddock we've got camphors that are on our southern side you know macadamias and camphors are the two most flammable species of trees and we've got one road out and you know otherwise we'd be on foot so in my opinion we were not going to hang around Uh, if if we saw fire approaching on you know at any distance my plan was to get out of here and fortunately it never came to that you know I've personally never watched wind directions or weather reports as much as I did during that time. We had we were so fortunate. We had one amazing day where the wind changed direction and the fire blew back on itself, and that gave the local fireys the chance to really get on top of it. And the threat did stay around for a while. We were watching, um, but it was not so urgent as those few days that were over sort of mid-November. And then, of course, we had incredible rain in February and some of the down pause that we've had since you know everything is looking much much greener creeks which had stopped running they're now much fuller you know and our tanks are too but of course summer is looming and I think of what we need to do to be better prepared next time for another bushfire season that may be around the corner and in my research for this rebuild and build better season, I saw a lot of examples where properties were only saved because someone had been there to de- to defend them. You know, there was a vivid example I remember seeing from the recent fires where a woman Uh, she shared on Facebook she'd returned with her family to find that her home was still intact and she was really shocked because there were so many others in the area that were lost. And as she surveyed her home, she found that there was an area of charring that was on the back of the property where she could see a fire had sort of run up the back of the house to the roof line um, on the rear wall. But that was the extent of damage. There was no more than that. And later as she was sort of, you know, around her home, she actually ended up crossing paths with a volunteer who had, been one of the people that had stayed and walked the streets with other volunteers to help defend homes from the fires. And this volunteer on finding out where this woman lived, she actually pointed at the house and said that she'd seen some flames ignite the home around the back, but she'd gone around and put them out before they took hold of the home. And I remember the woman sharing just how incredibly emotional she was that she came that close to losing everything and it was the incredible gift of a volunteer that ended up protecting and saving her home. During my research for this season, I had the incredible privilege of speaking to an amazing man, Matt Fowler. And for six and a half years after the Victorian Black Saturday fires of 2009, Matt was one of the co-founders of a recovery group. It was called the Community on Ground Assistance or COGA, a group, and it was established after the 2009 Black Saturday fires with a simple aim to support survivors and those affected on the ground, however that may be. And I've got a really good um, link to an article that talks more about this organisation that I'll pop in the resources so you can check that out as well. Now, Matt told me that he'd actually battled to save his own home from the fires at Kingslake. And at the time, he was helped by his daughter, who was only nine years old um, when the fires came. So the reason that this happened was because in the lead up to the fires coming through where Matt lived... His partner had gone to visit her family. Um, it was terribly hot weather and she'd gone to, to visit her parents, I believe. And they would decided that, you know, she and, and Matt had decided that she should stay there for a bit longer because it was in air conditioning. It was terribly hot weather. There was nothing threatening at the time. It was just that everybody was experiencing incredibly you know incredibly hot temperatures and it seemed that it was a better place for her to be but as the fires were closing in and she sort of decided there was probably time that she should come home and they were talking about her coming home she actually couldn't get through uh, to her partner and to Matt and to her daughter and to her home and this was the thing that blew me away you know Matt said in the process of you know having to defend this this his property with his daughter he said to me we had a fire plan but it was a plan that was based on there being two adults there you know it was never intended that they'd be in the situation that they ended up being in and this brings me to the discussion that I wanted to have in this episode of the podcast and that's about the role of defense in your strategy for rebuilding after bushfire or building in a bushfire prone area now when I attended the Australian Bushfire Building Conference in September I was really interested to hear a lot of discussion about this topic and about focusing on the importance of defence in any bushfire building strategy. Now, in the last episode, I shared a lot of the information that was focused on what we can do in regards to designing and building for bushfire prone sites or in bushfire prone areas. These are sort of the, the passive things that you can do, the things that you design in. But in this episode, I, I want to take you through what's discussed in regards to active defence and its role in protecting your property and home in the event of bushfire or any fire for that matter you know that was the interesting thing that got flagged actually one of the one of the things that got discussed was you know the fact that our building codes they deal with measures that we need to take to help prevent ignition between properties so you know if your neighbor's house catch, catches fire for example they leave you know something on the cooktop or something like that you know the, there's protection in the building codes that is designed to prevent your house from being set alight just because their house is alight. You know, that's why we have boundary setbacks. It's why we can't have windows within certain distances from the boundary. It's why we need to use specific materials when we're building closely to adjacent homes or boundary lines, you know, and have things... to to actually create fire separation between properties. So there's this understanding about the ignition between properties and research that's occurring as a result of these recent fires and what's happened with ignition between properties in those recent fires as well that may actually impact our general building codes regardless of where you're located One of the recommendations coming out of the current Royal Commission is that the National Construction Code should be amended to specifically include as an objective making buildings more resilient to natural hazards. And radiant heat from neighbouring houses and the distance between houses, that may be something that gets reviewed as a result. Now, there's often CSIRO research cited that states up to 90% of homes burn from ember attack. And I've spoken about this before on the podcast. Embers can travel for kilometres ahead of a fire front depending on wind conditions. And they can also be present during the fire and after it's gone. There's actually a really confronting documentary on Netflix that's called Fire in Paradise, about the 2018 fires in California and I, I'll never forget them talking about the fact that the pine needles were falling like lit matchsticks from the sky well before the fire front actually reached the homes. During the conference one of the speakers actually showed the effectiveness of something as simple as well-installed, well-selected gutter guards. Um, so these are guards that go over your gutters and so many homes these days don't have simple roof forms. You know, you think of most modern homes, especially those that are built by volume or project builders, the roofscape is a litany of valleys and gutters as different roof pitches join together, sitting over a floor plan that steps in and out. You know, and as debris, leaf litter and those types of things collects in those valley and and gutters and when they don't have gutter guards on them, that provides ample opportunities for embers to find ignition points. And once something ignites, that fire can take hold and move through the outer skin of your property quite easily. And as Julie Furkin said in our conversation with her in an earlier episode this season, your home is full of kindling. It doesn't take much for then the whole thing to go up. Now, one of the speakers at the Australian Bushfire Building Conference, Associate Professor Owen Price, He spoke about some research carried out on the 2013 Lynxview bushfire. So Owen works at the Centre for Environmental Risk Management of Bushfires at the University of Wollongong and did a study into the determinants of house loss in two wildfires in eastern Australia in 2013. Now, in looking at the determinants of house loss, this research showed that householders have a vital role. Defence... Defence was actually the biggest factor in the survival of the home. So this was above construction codes. This was, you know, it was actually amazing how far ahead it was. And this research also identified that the Asset Protection Zone or the APZ, that had a significant impact on lowering loss as well. And, you know, we discussed what an Asset Protection Zone or an APZ is with Jeff Dow, uh, who's a bushfire consultant from MBI Bushfire Consulting, earlier in this season. So we'll pop a link in the resources for that info if you want to check that out again. Now, of course, the lack of maintenance was also identified as a big issue and that's critical for the long-term performance of your asset protection zone. There's uh, obviously no point actually establishing an asset protection zone when you design and build your house and then letting it become overgrown with vegetation and foliage and things like that. So the maintenance, big, big, big factor and something that was being clearly flagged in the conference was the possibility of inspections being part of future protocols in these areas to actually ensure that those APZs are doing what they need to and people are maintaining them because distance to vegetation has been identified as a really important factor in a home's ability to be defensible and protected overall. And one of the other speakers, Catherine Ryland, who's from CR Bushfire and Planning, she actually mentioned that maintenance programs are the big gap and that enforcement and compliance is being considered to ensure that a management regime uh, exists for routine inspections of APZs. Now another speaker was Miss Sue Bell who's landscape architect and principal urban designer for the Blue Mountains City Council and she gave a great presentation on on how you can actually incorporate landscape design to improve the bushfire performance overall. There's some really good resources out there for how to approach your landscape design to set up better defence mechanisms for your property but um, Sue's presentation gave some great highlights to pay attention to. One of the things included thinking about how water can improve your defendability in many ways. And part of this she actually mentioned was locating vegetable gardens near the house because they require more water. So you're more likely to keep the soil moisture content quite high um, on those gardens. And another thing she mentioned was ornamental features and swimming pools that can be really good on the likely fire side approach, um, fire approach side. So she actually mentioned trying to identify which side of your property, fires would most likely approach from, and then looking at whether you can locate more water dense features, water dense planting, those types of things on those side, and then also selecting vegetation um, that could be an ember and a heat and a heat shield as well. Now, as I said, there's. Um, you know there's there's lots that you can access to get help with your landscape design when in a bushfire prone area and in fact the Architects Assist website has a free guide that's by landscape architect Philip Withers it's called Best Practices for Landscaping for Bushfire Resilience he's published it just recently Um, it's a good starting point and I'll pop a link in the resources for you if you'd like to check that out. Now another area that was discussed was bushfire bunkers or shelters and one of the speakers, Dr Douglas Brown for Bushfire Architecture, actually spoke about the fact that in response to the recommendations from the 2009 Royal Commission, a standard was released for bushfire bunkers or shelters. Now, this is not a standard that's accepted everywhere, though. Tasmania is not for bushfire shelters or bunkers. But Victoria has certainly been much more proactive with this. Uh, it's released its own standard and accreditation scheme, and um, I'll pop a link to that in the resources, so you can check that out. It's a it's a really good rundown on what they consider um, is is a a valid and uh, I'm trying to search for the words a, a bushfire shelter that can be approved. Now, one of the issues that Dr. Brown actually pointed out with this standard is that shelters and bunkers need to be single purpose uh, in order to be satisfying the standard because it's you can imagine it seemed to be risky to have a secondary purpose that might be you know storage or a wine cellar for example because having that purpose may actually compromise the use of the bushfire shelter in an emergency for the purpose it was actually built for and it's tricky because then you know if you had the additional purpose you might be able to validate that initial cost um, but I have seen that Some homeowners have been able to include a bushfire bunker or shelter in their overall project strategy. And consequently, it's actually enabled them to build their home to a lower BAL rating because they have the bushfire shelter. So that's been assessed as part of their overall strategy and their overall approval. And that's meant that it's saved money in their project overall because it's been less expensive to have the home at a lower BAL rating with the bushfire shelter as a separate structure than to build the home at a higher BAL rating. Now, the main issue that he cited um, for bushfire shelters is that to comply, they're actually separate structures detached from the main dwelling. So they'll either be freestanding or um, submerged, semi-submerged structures And so because they're separate, there can be vulnerability of residents as they have to move from the home to that bunker or shelter to be able to access it and to take shelter. And especially this can be challenging if they're doing it in fire conditions where visibility may be reduced. You might have high winds that are blowing about unsecured items, knocking down trees. You know, ideally people are making the choice to relocate to the shelter before the fire front is near. But of course, then it's a case of your ability to seal the pro- the seal the shelter properly for when the fire actually passes and for you to have sufficient oxygen for all occupants in the shelter whilst they wait for that fire to pass and for it to be safe enough to emerge. And so the timing of that can be tricky um, in terms of anticipating exactly how much oxygen you'll need. There's also the issue of physically maintaining the bunker for those emergency items. You can imagine these freestanding structures that might sit outside, not being used for several years, you know, um, and then do need to be, use what you might have as a maintenance regime to make sure it's always going to be safe and do what it needs to when it needs to and then of course access issues for those that might be less mobile if you've got somebody who's got um, mobility issues or those kinds of things being able to physically get there and then get in um, can be challenging as well. Now Lastly, I want to share with you a really fantastic presentation that was done by a friend of Undercover Architect, Sarah Lebner, who is Principal Architect from Lighthouse Architecture and Science. And Sarah's presentation was a fantastic one. It was called Designing for Active Defence. Sarah, in her presentation, wanted to encourage designers and industry professionals to consider how they could design in better opportunities for people to actively defend their property and to be able to stay safe when they decided to stay and defend. Speaking from personal experience, Sarah actually shared how her family had defended their own regional property, her family home. And unfortunately, her husband's family's home during the same period, you know, a few days prior to the fire getting near her family home, her husband's family home was sadly lost during the bushfires. But her husband and uh, his brother incredibly came to then Sarah's family home and helped her dad and the rest of the family be able to defend Sarah's family home and keep it safe. Now, Sarah had a a series of things to consider in the design of any home, anywhere, to make it simpler to defend in the event of a bushfire. And really, you know, these things are about assisting the human in the equation to do the best job in the safest possible way. I'll take you through some of them now, but firstly, I really wanted to thank Sarah for this presentation because it was such a great way to consider really achievable things that can be done when designing a home that really should be done when designing any home um, or refurbishing an existing one. And the things that I'm definitely looking at what we need to do for our home to make it more defensible uh, in the future. You know, this was not only shared through the eyes of an architect, but it was also from this personal experience of some, you know, from someone who's watched her husband, her father and her brother-in-law make that very big yet very early decision um, that was clearly very informed as well to stay and defend their property and so what they then needed to put in place to make that happen. Now Sarah made the point of course that you may or not always get the choice to leave as well so being able to defend your property as a backup is worthwhile preparing for and something that came through loud and clear in the conference as well was that the fire brigade or the local fireys may not always be able to get to you, may not have capacity to get to you, may not want to come to you so you may be doing this on your own as well and that needs to be considered too. Now One of the things that Sarah mentioned first was creating designated indoor and outdoor storage locations for your protective gear, for communications equipment and for firefighting equipment. Now, I think this is critical because if this stuff sits in a box in a garage or a shed, it's bound to not be maintained and it's going to be difficult to find when you need it. And if you've instead got dedicated storage place uh, indoors and outdoors, that means that it's going to be easy for you to lay your hands on. Even in the event of a smaller fire, say, you know, you you might have machinery that ignites a grass fire or a burn pile gets out of hand or something like that. You know, where I live, um, we've had issues with macadamia mulch piles self-igniting. And, you know, so when you've got this equipment nearby, that means it's much easier to grab. And it also means that it gets looked at, it gets maintained and it's then ready to use when it's needed. Next that Sarah mentioned were survival kits and having a place where they get stored as well. Again, this is about it being easy for you to lay your hands on, making sure it's always up to date, it's got what it needs in it. You know, this is the same as in any residential home, having a fire blanket, having a handheld fire extinguisher, having your first aid kit, those essential items and everyone knowing where it's kept and it having a dedicated place where it can always be found. You know, these things, you're wanting to find them quickly. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to have to rummage around um, at the point of actually needing them. Sarah's home, uh, her family home, she mentioned it was without power for 23 days during the bushfires. Now, they had a generator. But getting fuel for that generator meant actually travelling into town and Sarah said that wasn't necessarily ideal given the level of safety overall and of course someone leaving the property when they might be needed there or they might not be able to get back in. So provision for loss of power, water pressure or telecommunications definitely needs consideration. Another speaker at the conference actually talked about this and mentioned that he's switching. He's got a petrol firefighting pump, and he's switching that over for a diesel one because, um, and also getting one that switches on rather than pulls with a choke cord, like a you know, like an old lawnmower does. Um, and I know this with our uh, the firefighting pump that uh, my husband bought. It has one of those pull cords on it. I know that our water pump down by the creek it has a pull cord on it. It's not something that I necessarily can always do. The older these pumps get, the more kind of yank they need on them. And um, I know that there's been times where I've just not had the knack or the strength to, to pull on it, to get it to start the way that it needs to. This speaker said, you know, he knows that uh, because he's getting older, um, starting one with a choke cord may cause issues for him and he wants to be able to just switch it on when he needs to. And he said that the petrol one can suck in air and that actually can prevent it from starting or can cause it to cut out during the course of, course of a fire. So... Um, That can be problematic in high winds as well, so uh, the diesel one doesn't have that issue. So, you know, this is really about your forward planning, thinking about what the environment and the scenario might be, what might go wrong when you're in a bushfire environment and being prepared for it. Sarah also mentioned the importance of ensuring that you have sufficient external taps with metal fittings to access all defendable areas. Now, she mentioned that the average project home, you know, a home that's built by somebody like Metricon or one of the other volume builders, they generally only come with two external taps as a standard, one at the front and one at the back. And you'll find this will generally be the standard with most homes, actually. And, and the thing is that there's people building Metricon homes and the like on regional properties. So something like this, the standard specification, it just won't give those large coverage options that are necessary to make your property defensible. She also mentioned that it's really helpful to have an internal fitting that you can connect a hose to for that internal defense and somewhere where you can easily fill buckets. You know, laundry and kitchen sinks, they're getting smaller. Some homes are being built without bathtubs. It's going to take a while for you to fill a bucket from your shower. It's not exactly the most efficient way to do it. So, being able to defend your property from the inside can be important when a front is passing your property or you've got multiple fronts and you're trying to observe that and being on the inside of your home. Now, uh, this the one that she mentioned now, it, this really resounded with me and it's, it's uh, designing for the easy ability to block your downpipes and then flood your gutters. And she mentioned a product called the Bushfire Buddy, and I'll pop a link to it in the resources. But of course, there's you know lots of other things that you can do to do this. I remember watching my husband trying to stuff old rags down our gutter um, outlets at the top outlets at the top of the downpipes in order to flood our gutters. So having something like this built in would have just made the world of difference. Now, Sarah also talked about the location of your air conditioning units and being able to block off the air intake easily. Of course, you know, thinking about the air quality during fire season and when fires are taking hold like this. And she also mentioned the importance of creating a safe place to put pets to refuge as well. The last thing that you want to be dealing with is your dog going missing whilst you're trying to prepare or defend your property and having that stress as well. Now, I have just scratched the surface of what was shared at this conference. I've tried to give you kind of the really kind of nuts and bolts and some of the most actionable things that I think will be super helpful for you. There was some really great information that was shared at the Australian um, Bushfire Building Conference. It was just so amazing to see so many passionate and experienced professionals in this area generously sharing their knowledge and experience. I personally was really blown away by just how many people are working in this space In such a committed way to really, you know, nerd out's not the word, but just understand the nitty gritty of how bushfires perform, how we can make our homes more defensible, uh, how to build more bushfire resilient homes. You know, this is this is something that really I think every home homeowner needs to consider um, for making homes that are just generally more resistant to the climate and to our experience of living where we do. So I really do hope that you found these two episodes helpful as a wrap up. And of course, remember that you can grab transcripts of these episodes and of all of the episodes in season two on the website. Um so you can head to the resources to grab that link and I've got all the other links that I've mentioned in this episode there as well. Now, this episode, well at least for now, it's going to wrap up season 12 of the podcast. Now, this is <laughs> this has been an epic season and I want to say a huge 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 thank you to all of my guests for sharing, for sharing such amazingly helpful and incredible insights. You know, the whole rebuild and build better series, it's been it's been I I deliberately built it to be this great volume of information and knowledge to help those who really need it and I'm I'm just so glad and so grateful that we got to share it with you Uh, remember that you can head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild I've got all that we've shared in the rebuild and build better series there Um, you know you can bookmark it you can keep checking back on it it's it's grown as this incredible online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or wanting to build better and more resilient homes I've still got some more resources and links to add so I'm going to keep doing that over the coming months and you know really aim to keep updating it as more and more information comes out as well and of course please share that information share that resource share this podcast with others that you know it will help I you know I'd really love this whole season to reach as many people who need it for the rebuild and build better series on the website to 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 just be accessible for those who can really benefit from it and who can benefit from the expertise and the experience and the knowledge that we've been sharing here. I always feel a little bit sad to be signing off a whole season, Um, you know, especially when it's been, when it's been really chunky, when it's involved a lot of episodes like season 12 has, I think there were 18 in total. I've met some incredible people through this season, some amazing, generous, caring professionals who are so passionate in this area. It's been, uh, it's been such a privilege for me to bring this season to you. And I've loved hearing from those of you who've shared this season, who've found it helpful, you know, who've gone and done things like checked your insurance, who've been in touch with the guests that you've met here, or who've told me what a difference it's making in the design and planning of your future home. And of course, a huge, huge thank you to UA member Greg Iartan, who inspired this season. Um, you know for his for his passion as well, and for the incredible research resources and people that he put me in touch with, and the time that he gave me, and continues to give me as well. He keeps me updated on things and um it's you know it's just been amazing to have him and to have his help and of course a massive massive thank you to all the professionals the community members the volunteers many of whom are still working on the ground helping those who are recovering and rebuilding their homes and who are navigating the additional challenges that COVID's been providing they you know I extend so 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 much gratitude to all of you. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to be talking about choosing the right builder for your project. For many homeowners that I speak to, choosing their builder almost feels like the biggest decision in their project. You know, this is the person or the company that you're going to be handing significant amounts of money to. It's the person or company that's going to physically build your home. This is the structure that you're going to have over your head, you know, that you're going to be living in with your family and it's going to have to take the punishment of family life and need to stay upright, uh, you know, structurally sound, potentially for decades. So... You know, from my conversations with homeowners, I know just how nervous the selection of your builder can actually make you. So I want to take you through some key things to know when it comes to choosing your builder and avoiding some of the pitfalls and the dodgy operators that are out there. Because whilst I, you know, I I even just heard a story today, I'm going to share it with you on the next podcast about an operator out there that just made my blood boil. So you know, that's going to be in our very next episode. So be sure to listen and tune in for that. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time. Bye.